today on Ag News Daily. So it combined those two and it was called a combine. We've added a third function which makes it try. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is September 6th, 2018, uh, maybe, Delaney? 18. 2018, yes, just like I thought. I am Mike Pearson, joined today by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? Um, I'm pretty good, Mike, but I want to talk about your uh, your setup, we'll call it right now, that's going on at your house. My setup? What do you mean? Tell us about uh, your your tractor, how your tractor's charging, because I think it's hilarious. So I've got a dead Alice Chalmers 7060, and it's out in the corn crib, which does not have power. And so I've got two jumper cables hooked to one another, connected to a 78 Lincoln Continental that has been sitting out there running <laughs> for uh, just about an hour and a half now, and we are trickle-charging the battery. Oh, my gosh. Seriously, yeah. I think we should we should be blogging this, like... Life on the farm with Mike Pearson, because seriously, so many people would get a kick out of it. I mean, your cows get out every day or almost every day. You've got all sorts of interesting setups like that. You've MacGyvered things. Yeah, MacGyvering is how I approach farming. (laughs) I'm not good at maintenance. I'm not good at uh, mechanical repairs, but I can make stuff work briefly for the time (laughs) that I need it. That That is really the only skill that I have. Yeah, I know. I think it's funny. so. I need to jumpstart this tractor so I can go down to my neighbor's, hook onto my Minneapolis Moline, and pull it home. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you just pull it home yeah. with the Lincoln. Lincoln does not have a tow hitch. Oh well, you should probably get one for it. You could probably MacGyver one. I know, one. I absolutely should. You Without could probably, my truck, I, you could probably MacGyver one. I have faith in you. Honestly, I was out there in my garage looking at my welder and designing it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, because then I could pull the boat with it. I am not surprised at all. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's, that's my life. At least it's not raining today. This yeah, would not work in the heavy downpours we have had. It's not raining, but it's not yet sunny. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of gray and chilly. Delaney Windy. Falls here. Yeah, I know. I'm not. I'm not excited about it. I wanted one more nice week or so. I wanted a nice day tomorrow for my birthday, but I don't think I'm going to get it. I, I, I think tomorrow is supposed to be the nicest of the oh, good. potential, you know, before we get hit by that leftover tropical storm, Gordon. Yeah, I know. That's true. Well, so it's not your birthday yet, so we're going to work you, Delaney. What do you got for news? <laughs> uh, well, we've got some news, a little bit of news from yesterday's farm bill negotiation. So it does sound like the biggest thing that's been heating up negotiations is, of course, SNAP and SNAP work requirements. Um, So we actually had two meetings yesterday. We had the Democrat and House Senate Agriculture Committee. They met for two hours yesterday afternoon to discuss a variety of issues, as well as the first conference committee, which formally kicked off yesterday with a three-hour meeting. Of course, as I mentioned, they uh, each got their chance to basically air their grievances or priorities for the bill. Um, for SNAP discussions, though, which happened in the House Agriculture and Senate Agriculture med- Committee meetings, it sounds like negotiators, they've, they said they came to the table, they found some compromises, I guess you could call it, and they're now basically waiting for the Congressional Budget Office to see how much money they can allocate to those things and where the cost estimates are, um, but it sounds like 
they're going to tighten work rules or there's a possibility to tighten work rules. However, each state will get or be able to apply for waivers from those requirements. Oh, so I guess that's the compromise. Mm -hmm. States just won't have to do it. Right, which apparently makes Colin Peterson happy. Okay. Yeah, well, all right. I, you know, I guess that's that's a little political gamesmanship there. Of course, you're giving yeah. with one hand, taking away with the other, so yeah. nothing changes. But if it looks good on their re-election campaigns, maybe it'll help us get the uh, farm bill through. Yep. And, yeah, and it sounds like President Trump really wants to get it done before the expiration date, as well as really everybody that's kind of working on that one-on-one. Sounds like they really want to get that done. Yeah, you know, I th- they always do. And maybe we're making more progress this year than I'd figured we would. I think, I I don't know. I, I'm not there in Washington, so it's hard for me to speculate, but. Nah, again, Delaney, for a podcast, we can speculate all we I want. I know. But we don't have to speculate about what's going on in the hog industry in China. Earlier today, four new cases of African swine fever were reported. This brings the number up to 13, and this was as of a few hours ago. And um, that means we have had swine, African swine fever outbreak in China in five different provinces, and it has ranged over an area of 1,800 miles from mm. farthest outbreak to farthest outbreak. Uh, all of the ones reported earlier today were in places that have already seen these outbreaks, they're all small farms. It looks like the uh, the largest farm that was infected today was 800 pigs. Um, so not the huge modern operations that China's been moving to. It's still hitting the outdoor, you know, kind of backyard mm-hmm. type hog producer. But the, what do you want to say, the spread of the disease is accelerating, which has the uh, Chinese government a little nervous because it's popping up all over and more and more every day, and they don't seem to know yet where it's coming from or how it's spreading. I'm really curious to know if that's the actual number of cases in hogs that have been infected or if that's state media-controlled numbers. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I don't think we'll ever know the truth. No, probably not, unless we found somebody to speak like from China, but I don't know how we'd ever orchestrate that. Well, I tell you what, tomorrow I'm going to be on the China, the Global China Television Network talking about no. tariffs. So maybe I'll ask. I'll say, hey, if you want to, you know, subvert the central Chinese communist government and report to a podcast, give us a shout and I'll, I'll give our email address. <laughs> OK, perfect. I like that. I'm sure a lot of people will sign up to become yeah. targets of the uh, shy comms there I'm in sure China. You're right. Yep, absolutely. Oh, so pro- probably not going to know. So Delaney, what else you got for us? <laughs> OK. Well, as we talk about other tariff-related news, the National Corn Growers Association and the National Wheat Growers Association have made official requests to the USDA to share more information about the methodologies used to determine the amount of money per bushel each crop would get because, of course, those two groups especially feel like they were not fairly compensated for the tariff impact that it's had on corn and soybeans. The National Wheat Growers, um, their official estimates are that wheat has lost about 75 cents a bushel due to tariffs with uh, China and Mexico. And then, of course, as we mentioned before, corn was something like 44 cents, I think, per bushel that they've lost. Um, So the USDA office 
of the chief economist did not return their request to comment on whether it plans to publicly disclose how officials arrived at those payment rates. But I think that's going to be interesting to see because I'm sure other commodity groups will put a little pressure on them as well. Yeah, and my guess, and I want to state it right here, timestamp this, Delaney, mm -hmm. USDA is never going to tell us how no. they came up with that number. Uh, because if they did, it would open up a can of worms. Everybody would have their own economists digging into it and finding fault. And I'm guessing the USDA is just going to say, look, take your half a cent per bushel, corn growers, and, uh, and go home. It's a whole cent. A whole cent on 50% <laughs> yeah, of production. I'm, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, half a cent per yeah. bushel. Sure. But, Delaney, while we're talking corn, we have an update from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, out in Nebraska, who is talking about a shift in the ethanol industry. We're seeing Todd Sneller retire. He has been the administrator of the Nebraska Ethanol Board for almost 40 years, which is hard to believe that that fuel has been around for that long. So uh, let's get an update. Let's hear what has happened to the ethanol industry, a huge driver of corn demand in the country over the past 40 years. The Midwest has been blessed with a lot of great agricultural leaders over the years. One of the best is retiring after leading the Nebraska ethanol industry for nearly 40 of those years. Todd Sneller is leaving the position of administrator of the agency on September 14th. I asked Todd about his feelings now that the decision has been made. I think probably just a feeling of gratitude at having been given an opportunity to work with a number of really talented forward-looking legislators, board members, and others who had this idea of the ethanol concept in 1971 and being able to work with them from 1976 when I began till the present to take this concept into the commercial reality that's become today, 25 plants across the state of Nebraska, knowing that we're the number two ethanol producer and that this is an industry that today generates more than $5 billion a year in economic impact. So having had a small role in that, is something that uh, I'm really glad to have had the chance to do. Let's look back at, at the beginning. You've been doing this for some 40-odd years. Back to the Gasa Hall days. What was the uh, political atmosphere like uh, in trying to get this new product on the market? Well, I began working with the program in the decade of the 1970s when there were three really severe oil price disruptions. And so American drivers, for the first time, recognized that this is a big vulnerability. So on the one hand, there was a great deal of interest in trying to find a domestically produced product that could be used, at least in part, to replace gasoline. And number two, um, really try to make sure that we took advantage of that from a Nebraska perspective, because this could be an agri-business-based industry that could bring considerable benefit. So it was as the time of, of real interest and a time of trying to identify sources of ethanol and focus on the fact that we should try to produce it here in Nebraska. So it was a, a real building in the market. And it was probably the time it became very clear to us all that it was going to be a, a tough road to hoe because of the ongoing interest of the oil industry and not seeing the ethanol sector make any inroads. So a time of challenges, but one that was very interesting to see people eventually start to gravitate toward this new product that was available to them. Where were the first stations in Nebraska that, were, that you could get or get gasohol in? Well, St. Paul, the co-op in St. Paul was uh, really one of the forerunners. We'd worked with a number of people who had been interested in ethanol and obviously cooperative, uh, was responsive to its members. And so that was one. And then we worked with a small company here in Lincoln called Gas Plus Gasohol. And the reason for that endeavor was primarily because 
we had to actually file with the Environmental Protection Agency an application to allow the legal sale of 10% ethanol blends in commerce. That was not previously allowed in the recent past. And so uh, that was the applicant of record. We provided a bunch of information from one of the longest on-road tests of, of the ethanol blends ever conducted in Nebraska. So after 2 million miles of driving, we presented a lot of good technical information showing that this was, in fact, substantially similar to gasoline and therefore should be allowed into commerce, which eventually it was by late 1978. Now, through the 80s and the 90s, the industry gradually grew. What were the obstacles well, we, you talked about the oil companies for sure. That was that's always been an obstacle. What else was an obstacle for the growth of the industry? Well, because the commercial scale ethanol plant was viewed as something pretty novel, uh, it was difficult to obtain financing. So I think that was one of the biggest challenges that whether or not a financier would take a look at a product that really hadn't proven itself in the market. People really didn't know if you could sell a lot of it. And so uh, there was not a lot of enthusiasm by the financial community. I think another area clearly was in just the design of plants. People knew how to operate stills, and there were a number of them operating in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. But uh, the fact was that from a commercial scale, it was going to be a different challenge than they faced in making a still. So we were fortunate to have a number of forward-thinking engineering companies working with Nebraska businesses that were able to go ahead and uh, put in the first few plants. Uh, the operation of the first commercial scale plant in Hastings was a big deal because it showed that at a commercial scale they could um, produce ethanol and do it efficiently and make profits. And so I think as we got through the decade of the late 80s, a number of other companies started to take a closer look at that option. You mentioned uh, the the growth of the industry and the economic uh, benefits to the state of Nebraska, Nebraska number two in ethanol production in the nation. Uh, it really goes back to where these ethanol plants are located and the smaller towns where they are located. Well, we were really gratified to see that after the first flurry of plant development in the early 90s, it's primarily in the Corn Belt, and we were continually asked to provide data on top corn-producing counties. It became clear to some folks, though, that there's a key byproduct of ethanol production in the form of distiller's grains. And so we had a second wave of plant development that really focused on where do you sell that product locally. And so we had a really nice dispersion of plants across the state, literally in every corner of the state. And that, I think that's really helped spread the economic impact because oftentimes uh, we've had communities that are literally at 500 people up to some larger communities, but some of our really small communities that have attracted these plants, and that's 45 or 50 new employees. Uh, typically, the payroll's over a couple million dollars a year, so they're really well-compensated jobs, and they're professional jobs, and so it's allowed a number of Nebraskans to come back to the state, and they oftentimes wanted to live in a rural community, but perhaps there were not job opportunities there prior to the evolution of ethanol, so that's been a really good success story in terms of rural economic development in the state. Talk about what exports mean to the ethanol industry. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, due to a number of uh, decisions by the Environmental Protection Agency, the ethanol sector has had the luxury over time of picking and choosing some export opportunities, but now we're really forced into that in order to maintain demand for the huge volume of ethanol that can be produced here. So we've seen a number of companies, a number of countries that have really fully subscribed to ethanol as a means of reducing pollution. And they've had not only the U.S. example, but the Brazilian example to look at where high volumes of ethanol fuel are used. And so as a result of seeing good outcomes um, for both the ethanol and for the distiller's feed products, we have a really robust economic situation internationally as well as domestically.
Todd did a great job of helping him move a fledgling industry into the economic giant that it is today. Sarah Caswell will take over the agency on September 17th. For Ag News Daily, I'm Bruce Gorder. All right, well, that was great coverage there from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder. And, of course, guys, if you're interested in becoming a field reporter for the Ag News Daily podcast, feel free to reach out to Mike and I on Facebook, Twitter, on our emails. You can contact us through our website. We're always looking for new stories and new coverage. But this, actually, I want to ask for anyone out there who is going to sign up for the USDA assistance program, if anybody out there is planning on signing up or has signed up so far, I think that that would be worth some value to bring somebody on who can talk about that experience and what they've had so far. Uh, Just a quick little update here. AgriPulse reported this morning that the application is a one-page front and back paper, and the USDA is estimating that it should take farmers about 30 minutes to complete. But, of course, you have to report your entire production and your entire harvest, so you won't be able to uh, submit the paperwork until after harvest is finished. And then do you, like, staple your records to it? How do you prove what good, your harvest yeah, was? I don't know. That's a good question. That's why I think it'd be worth talking to somebody that's gone through this process. Yeah. So, I mean, wheat growers, you've got your, your wheat yeah. out of the field. If you've been into the FSA office, drop us a line. Let's uh, help us understand this a little bit. What do our corn and soybean and hog producers need to learn about this deal before they go in and meet with their county officers? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that could provide some good insight for everybody. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that happens when we do these, you know, quote unquote, bailout type programs is it can upset trading partners because it is looked upon as a subsidy. Luckily, nobody has raised much of a stink about this one and progress is being made between the U.S. and Canada on their trade talks. Delaney, have you Mm, been following this? I haven't. Tell me and Mike. So yesterday, Christia Freeland came to the U.S. They started discussions, she and all sorts of other, you know, bureaucrat trade people started chatting with Americans. Uh, Christia said, or Ms. Freeland, uh, whatever, said that they talked late in the evening and early this morning, and both Canadian and U.S. officials did a great deal of technical work on a number of issues. She said the talks have been constructive and positive. However... Just like we did with Mexico and the uh, the rules of origin, you know, percentage basis on the cars t- took to the last second to decide. In Canada, we've got two issues that are sort of holding up the deal. The first, you know, as we've talked about quite a bit, is dairy mm-hmm. continues to be a lot of discussion about how much of that market share the U.S. could get, how much are the Canadians willing to open up their dairy industry. And we're nowhere close to any sort of agreement on that. The other issue is the dispute settlement process. Canada wants it gone. Basically, it's let's say that the United States, in this case, puts a tariff on uh, lumber. We say that Canada has been dumping lumber into the U.S., so we're going to put a 10% tariff on lumber. The dispute resolution process would let the Canadians go in Mm. and meet with a a special council of American and Canadian officials, and then they could determine whether or not that tariff was uh, just. So basically it was like a court of appeals for tariffs. Hmm, okay. And uh, the U.S. wants it gone, Canada wants it to stick around, and there's you know, very little progress been made on that front. 
Okay, well, thank you. I'm glad you've been paying attention to that. I hadn't seen that yet. But I am out of news for today, Mike. Do you have any more? I just have one other piece, and it is broad-based economic outlook. The uh, New York Fed Chair Williams said that economic conditions in this country are, quote, as good as it gets. Um, he said the economy still has room to run. The Fed is expected in the three weeks to do its third rate hike of the year. And he says we're going to continue to be patient and allow this economy to continue to grow and uh, continue to perform. So I think that's great news there for American consumers. And hopefully they're going to get out there and, and choose to eat high value products, whether it's pork or beef or whatever. Milk. Eat some milk. Yeah, yeah, eat ice cream, eat butter, drink milk, you know, heavy cream, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, Delaney, with that, let's jump into the markets before we get to our harvest discussion with Ben Dillon from Tribine. What do you say? Well, let's do it, Mike. All right, folks. And we've got kind of a blah day in the markets here, at least corn and soybeans. They are in the green, though. September corn up one and three quarter cents at three fifty three and a half. The December contract up a penny to close at three sixty six and a quarter. Looking at soybeans, the September contract up one and a quarter at eight twenty six and three quarters. November also up one and a quarter, closed the day at eight thirty nine and a quarter. In Chicago wheat, September contract down seven and three quarter cents at 486 even. December down eight to close at 513 and three quarters. Looking over on the livestock side, a little weakness here in live cattle. The October contract down 15 cents at 108.90. The December down two and a half, closed at 113.72 and a half. Slight strength in the feeder cattle market. The September contract up a nickel at 151.77 and a half. The October also up a nickel, closed the day at 151.52 and a half. And big gains in lean hogs as that Chinese news has uh, spread to our markets. The October contract up the limit, $3 to close at 54.97.50. December up a dollar fifty. Finished at 56.67 and a half. And it was a big down day today in the dairy market as we take a look at class three milk. The September contract was down 25 cents to finish at 16.30, and October was down 37 cents to close at 16.44. Now let's jump in and have that discussion with the founder of Tribine, Ben Dillon. Well, folks, still at Farm Progress Show 2018. Right now, we are standing in front of a gigantic, articulated orange and black Tribine. I almost said combine, but it's not. It's the Tribine. I'm standing with Ben Dillon, the founder and, and bills payer for the company. Ben, tell us a little bit about what we've got going on here. How many of these machines are out rolling today? Okay, we have uh, we've built six machines. Uh, most of those have been used in testing over the last three seasons. Mother Nature sets our schedule and deadlines. We don't set our own deadlines. So we've been testing uh, after it was first shown at the 2016 Farm Progress Show. Uh, a major milestone is coming up for us shortly in that we will ship our first machine to a, a paying customer. And uh, so that's a big milestone for Tribine. That is a fantastic milestone because, yeah, I remember coming here in 2016. I think you guys were in this location or pretty darn close yes, to we it. Were. And just seeing it, it seemed kind of like a, like a dream at that point. For our listeners who have never heard of the Tribine or haven't been able to make it to a Farm Progress show or one of your demo days, why is it called the Tribine? What have you built? Well, first of all, it's called the Tribine because it replaces a combine. And the original word was combine in the 1940s because it 
combined the binder that went out in the wheat field made shocks and the separating machine or threshing machine that sat in the barnyard and made a straw pile. Mm -hmm. So it combined those two and it was called a combine. We've added a third function which makes it try, or three. Uh, and that third function is the ability to carry a semi-load of grain through the field with us as we're harvesting. It's only a semi-load in the last couple hundred yards, yeah. uh, but we do have the ability to carry a thousand bushel, a semi-load, uh, put it in the semi in two minutes, uh, because that's all the time a farmer will be patient enough to sit still. No, that, that's <laughs> Including a Including me, yes. <laughs> and so what is your background, Ben? How did you decide to, to back this device, this fantastic tool? Well, I grew up on a farm in Indiana and still, still have a farm in Indiana. Uh, when I graduated from Purdue, I didn't have the money to be a farmer, so I went off in industry. Came back to the farm almost 30 years later, and the first job they gave me was driving a grain cart, 600 bushel at the time, and I'm sitting at the end of the field waiting for the combine. And I just said, this is a total waste. There's got to be a better way. And that better way, which dramatically reduces, reduces traffic and compaction in the field, is to carry the grain with you. Such the, the tribine. Uh, and in the long term, the real payback from the tribine is reducing compaction. Uh, and Even carrying a thousand bushels yes. plus a combine through the field, we can reduce compaction. Absolutely, by 30% at least. Uh, and that's because we never go all the way across the field full. And we only make two tracks per pass. And if you want, for the next 10 years, you can go in those same two tracks. Uh, so our ultimate goal is to have the tribine be the only machine in the field uh, at harvest time. When it leaves, the soil will be such that you can go in there the next spring and no-till plant it. Our ultimate goal is no-tilling in the Corn Belt. That's, that's really our ultimate goal in, in life. And, and in the meantime, we can save farmers lots of money. Right. And, you know, you look ahead 5, 10, 15 years, that no-till in the Corn Belt, we look at nutrient reduction, we look at reducing runoff, all of those things kind of play in to the design you have here. But, of course, carrying grain is important, mm -hmm. but I'm still running a combine. What kind, of, uh, what kind of head are we talking on here? How much can we run through? We don't manufacture heads. The, the faceplate on the tribine is the same as John Deere because they're the industry leader. So any head that a John Deere can pick up, we can pick up, and we don't manufacture heads. Okay. And we don't recommend heads. Sure. So without recommending heads, how big of a head has, have people put on running wheat? Can you run a 45, 40 foot? Sure. Uh, the tribine is designed to pick up 20,000 pounds. The biggest head available in North America today weighs 15,000 pounds. So we can pick up any head. <laughs> so you got your first one going out to a paying customer here the 1st of September, looking out through the rest of 2018-2019. How do things shape up for you as a manufacturer and a retailer? What are you looking at? Well, the thing that's most important to us is that we don't outdistance or numerically outsell our capability to support the machines. Because remember, it's still a new from the ground up machine uh, that was designed in the last three years. Uh, and, and that hadn't happened since the 1940s. So we need to support the machines, support our customers, so we don't want to out, outrun our ability to support them. So 
Uh, if at the end of 2019 we have 20 machines in the field that we're capable of supporting, we'd be very happy. Longer term, when you look out at going nationwide or worldwide, what's the distribution model look like? Will you be identifying dealers or supporting no, them all our, out of Kansas? Our distribution model uh, is to do it direct okay. because we want to be able to totally control customer service. And uh, that would not be possible without the Internet. The Internet has just changed the world of communication. Uh, when we announced the Tribine here in 2016, uh, in the first uh, 16 to 21 days, we got 34,000 responses from Germany. Oh, wow. 34,000 from Germany because of the Internet. The Internet has changed the way you communicate with your customers, potential customers, and how you support them. Absolutely. And for our listeners who aren't farmers, you're probably familiar with the direct-to-consumer model through Tesla. The car company's been doing this for the past couple of years. And Hagee did it very successfully for 50 years. Right, right. I mean, it's been done That's before. That's a close model here. So, Ben, this is really exciting. You're here at the show. What's the take now that you have the finished product folks can go and buy? What's the farmer's reaction? The farmer's reaction has been overwhelming. Uh, I mean, the interest in, in the third, second Farm Progress show, actually third, counting Decatur, second one in Iowa, uh, is higher than it was the first year when everybody was fascinated with it. Fantastic. Well, that's what we want to see. It's a really great product. It's just, it's just, it's so cool to see a new, entirely new concept come into agriculture. I think that's something we need. And folks, check it out. Ben, where should they go to get more information? Go to our website uh, on the internet, and it's very simple. Tribine. T-R-I-B-I-N-E dot com. It's as simple as that. Ben Dillon, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. Well, Delaney, that's the thing. You go to Farm Progress Show, you see all sorts of innovations, great ideas, and here's one that's making it to the market. Yeah, it's exciting stuff to be in the future, in the in the agriculture industry right now. Even with all the trade stuff going on, there's a lot of cool technology coming out. Absolutely. It's exciting, Delaney. You know what else is exciting to do? What else, Mike? For folks in northern Iowa, southern Minnesota, it's exciting to have dinner with Delaney and me and Ted Seifert <laughs> and Matt Zayner next week. So reach out to us. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at Ag News Daily or on the website at agnewsdaily.com. You know, tell us where you live, what you grow, and if you're willing to have a couple of weirdos, drop by. And we're willing <laughs> to buy dinner. Ted Seifert from Zayner is willing to buy dinner. Yeah, perfect. Nice. That sounds great, Mike. I'm excited. Looking forward to that as well. And you can find us again on social media at Ag News Daily. Mike, with that, shall we let the people go? Let's let them go.